Greetings and welcome to another installation of the series, Let Us Reason Together. Let Us Reason Together. This is a somewhat overviewed look of the book of Isaiah. We're hitting the highlights, so to speak, and we're probably about halfway through this. And we find ourselves here in the middle of the book in some a narrative section that really is the turning point of the book of Isaiah. Well, we spoke much about it last time in a uh, sermon called Besieged, and that is on Isaiah chapter 36. So if you haven't yet seen Besieged, you might want to check that out before listening to this. However, they can both stand alone, but it is uh, well introduced by the previous message called Besieged. In Isaiah 36, here's what we learned. The land of Judah had been conquered, all except for Jerusalem itself. And they were continuing, the Assyrians were continuing their attack upon Lachish at the time when Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, sent leaders to Jerusalem to meet with the elders of the city and try to negotiate their surrender. Well, the enemy was introduced to us there in chapter 36, and this uh, man called the Rabshakeh, which seems to be a title rather than a name, he comes insulting uh, not only the people of Judah, but most specifically, most importantly, their God. That's right, the Lord of hosts. They were insulting him, challenging the abilities of the people of Judah to get out of their situation and their God to save them. And so this is a prideful anti-Yahweh rant that we find in the pages of Scripture. The chapter ends recounting this rant to King Hezekiah. So King Hezekiah sent delegates out to meet with the Rabshakeh, and they came back and reported all that he had said to Hezekiah. Now, we look at this and we understand that Hezekiah and the people of Judah are the people of God. They're covenanted with God in what we know as the Old Covenant. And Hezekiah was a man who had a, a history of both good and bad, uh, mostly good, but not perfect. He tried to negotiate with the Assyrians. He tried to negotiate and get help from Babylon. He tried to negotiate and get help from Egypt. And so these were bad because according to the covenant God made with the people, whenever they had difficulty in their land, they were to consult him and him alone. And we see also in the background here as being the covenanted people of God, uh, they were to negotiate with him alone. They were not to make treaties with the people who came and with their enemies who, who came up against them. They were to trust in God. And the covenant terms at this time were mostly working against them because the prophet Isaiah and other prophets had recounted very plainly what the sins of the nation were. And they were on God's bad side. <laughs> And they had earned this siege. They had earned this defeat. But nevertheless, even with that said, and even with the terms of the covenant spelling that out very clearly, there were promises that God had made with the covenant, promises that were irrevocable, even unto exile, even if the people should earn exile from their land. There were promises that he would return them. And the line of David... Uh, descendant of whom is King Hezekiah, uh, is promised to be reigning ultimately from Jerusalem forever. So to summarize uh, Hezekiah's predicament, 
On the one hand, he has had failures, personal and as a nation. There's been widespread compromise for the people of Judah, and we can take a look at this as being in the church today and being covenanted, though under a better covenant, with whole denominations falling away. In many ways, the Western church is this ancient Jerusalem being besieged by the enemy who has taken away our allies, who has taken away our, our attempts at working church according to our own will, according to our own pattern, according to our own false interpretation of the word of God. And now it is laid besieged by a world who is pushing it further and further to the margins of society. Now, on the other hand, we stand on the same promises, actually better promises than the old covenant. Isaiah has spoken much of their future fulfillment. As we've come through the book of Isaiah, we see that there's a coming king, this Emmanuel, this God with us who will reign supremely over perfect peace, a new and restored Jerusalem, a place of justice, a place of righteousness. And we see in this new covenant that a better covenant and better promises will be fulfilled. And this will encompass not just Judah or Jerusalem or Israel, but all nations will become subject to him. And Isaiah has already revealed this in multiple messages throughout his book. So working past our own weaknesses and our own failures, the, the question we have with Hezekiah is this, how will Hezekiah move forward? And how can we learn from his moves here in Isaiah chapter 37? Yes, we are the covenant people of God. Hezekiah and Judah were under what's known as the old covenant, which was broken by them. And it concerned the land. It concerned the priesthood. It concerned the worship uh, style and practices of the tabernacle and the temple and the civil laws of the people uh, joined together in this this worldly kind of nation state. But now in the new and better covenant, we still, the people of God, it is enacted upon better promises. It is enacted upon not a sacrificial system, but a sacrificial Christ who came and gave his life a once for all accomplishment of all that has been promised by God. And so the question that we have is, how shall we move forward through whatever challenges we may face as individuals or as churches? And what can we learn from Isaiah here as he deals with his God in this great situation? So, revealed this time here in Isaiah chapter 37, we're going to begin there and we're going to take it a small chunk at a time. So join me there in the scriptures as we read along starting in verse 1 of chapter 37. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, that is, as soon as he heard about all the horrible things this, this person had said regarding their God, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord, that is, the temple. He sent to Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary and the senior priests, covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. 
It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he shall hear a rumor, and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Well, the word of God here is clear uh, that God is going to do something about this. And what we want to see here is, uh, after beginning with a short word of prayer, let's look at how the people of God respond to the crisis. Father God, we thank you so much for the scriptures today. As we seek to understand Isaiah chapter 37, we pray that your spirit and your word will help us rightly apply it. So Lord, let us uh, seek your face today. Let us find you in the pages of scripture. Let us understand what it means that you are the Lord of hosts. Let us understand what it means that we have the privilege of prayer and that we would enact it and that you would increase our faith to face whatever challenges we have in faithfulness to you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, let's take a look at our uh, outline here. And we want to see this, you know, last time we spoke about this, how will Hezekiah move forward? How can we learn to move forward in challenges? And we can learn that by what is modeled here in chapter 37, how the people of God, specifically Hezekiah and Isaiah, respond to a crisis. And the first thing is this, the people of God should be most concerned with the reputation of God. Let's go back to the scriptures there for a moment. We should be most concerned with the reputation of God. And if we look in verse one, it says this, you know, King Hezekiah heard he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth, went in the house of the Lord. So he's very, very upset. They were very expressive people and they would make their outward appearance match their inward turmoil and difficulty. And look what he says to Isaiah. Uh, it's a day of distress, of rebuke and of disgrace. Why? Um, well, it's because of this. Um, maybe the Lord will hear and rebuke the words that he has heard. In other words, this mocking of the living God is really the central issue that Hezekiah is most concerned about. Of all the things said about him personally, about Judah and its abilities, about the size and scope and strength of the Assyrian army, of all those things, he zeroes in on this. They mocked the living God. And the people of God should be uh, most concerned with the reputation of God. After all, we are his image bearers upon the earth. And as all human beings should be most concerned with this, more specifically, the people of God who have been adopted into his very household should be concerned with what is being said and put forward by the world concerning him. So the people of God should be concerned with the reputation of God, and in times of difficulty, they should move toward God. You notice he went into the house of the Lord, and then he sent a message to Isaiah. 
And last time we spoke about the fact that Hezekiah had made mistakes. He was warned by Isaiah, don't trust in Egypt, don't trust in the Assyrians or the Chaldeans, those things will fail you. And here is the day that Isaiah predicted, despite Hezekiah's efforts to avoid it. Now it's not time for a pity party, it's time to seek God. Everywhere it is proper to do this. And when we look into the pages of Scripture, we find that for the people of God, indeed for all people anywhere, that times of crisis it is proper and fitting to seek God in them, even if the crisis is of our own making, or our own fault, or a result, a direct result even, of our sins. It is still proper to go to Him. This is what's built into the code for the Old Covenant for the people of Israel in the Code of Deuteronomy, where it speaks of in there how they ought to conduct themselves living in the promised land. It says very clearly there that when they do mess up, in other words, it was a given that God knew they would, they were to seek him and they were to make sacrifice and they were to come to him in worship and repentance. And this was critically important. You might uh, be familiar with a passage in Second Chronicles chapter 7, in which uh, Solomon dedicates the temple based upon the promises that were given to his father, David. You know, the Lord says this to the people at the dedication of the temple. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Did you catch that? If they would turn from their wicked ways. In other words, they're in the middle of wickedness and from that position, turn to God, then he will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. And so this promise of God is even when you're in the midst of it, even when you're in the mud, reach up and I will be there. And this is so critically important, and we see it lived out here, because despite all of Judah's sins and Hezekiah's failings, and even Isaiah's own admitted shortcomings that he was a man of unclean lips, here they come to God in the crisis, and that is the right place to be. And think about this. This is universal for mankind, because you go all the way back to the garden, and Adam and Eve sinned, and the Lord comes along, and he says, where are you? In other words, the, the proper thing to do is to reach out and say, here I am. My goodness, I've sinned. And we think about Genesis chapter 4, where uh, Cain and Abel are... Um, offering sacrifices, and Cain kills his brother Abel as seemingly out of jealousy, and the Lord comes to him, and he asks him, where is Abel your brother? And there's that opportunity to confess, and he doesn't confess, and then he says, what is this you have done? And he still doesn't confess or admit any fault before the Lord, and the Lord punishes him tremendously. And so here Hezekiah goes into the house of the Lord, the temple, to be near to where the presence of the Lord was in their covenant. And he sends for Isaiah. So the people of God not only should move toward God in times of trouble, but they should also move toward one another. And this is no small point. This is the design of God, is that his people are a people. It's not a a bunch of individuals disconnected from one another. He redeems a people. The church today is called a nation that is that was not a nation. 
And so here in this day of distress, this crisis point and seemingly out of options and, and completely out of strength with God reputation, God's reputation at stake, Hezekiah reaches out to Isaiah. Why? Because Isaiah can be counted on. Isaiah and Hezekiah had a relationship. So the people of God, indeed, they respond to a crisis. And this is important, too, that the, the, the people of God should pray. They should pray. So they should band together and they should pray in times of trouble. And we see it here in this part where he goes and asks Isaiah to pray. We see it later in the chapter when Hezekiah will receive more news and he will turn to the Lord in prayer, a great prayer that we will see there. This is what it's all about. So uh, he calls upon Isaiah to pray, pray. And Isaiah has an immediate answer. So we see here in chapter 37, verses 6 and 7. God knew what was going on already. Isaiah didn't have to think about it. He really didn't have to even pray. He apparently probably already had been because he received an answer already from the Lord. As soon as Hezekiah's men went to Isaiah, Isaiah has an answer. And he says, say to your master this. And this is when we begin to see the most important part of this. That's not just the what is modeled by the people of God here, but what is revealed about God himself. God responds to his people. The Lord responds to his people. The Lord acts on behalf of his people according to his word. First, he speaks through his word. In this case, firsthand through the prophet Isaiah. Look in verses 6 and 7 here. It's essentially saying, don't be afraid. Uh, yeah, the issue was what was said about the Lord. Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. And then he says he's going to take care of it. He points out Sennacherib's fate. And the answer was this. Sennacherib's going to hear a rumor. He's going to go back to his own land and he's going to die there. And that's when we get then to what happens next. Let's read on uh, from Isaiah chapter 37 and let's look at verses 8 through 13 here. It says the Rabshakeh returned. So he, he went back to where the king was, the king uh, Sennacherib of Assyria, and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he heard that the king had left Lachish. Now the king heard concerning Tirhaka, king of Cush, he has set out to fight against you. So this is the rumor that he was predicted by God to hear. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah saying, thus you shall speak to King Hezekiah of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed? Gozan, Haran, Rezif, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim, the king of Hena, or the king of Evah? Well, these are strong words that we see coming from 
the the Rabshakeh and and in this letter from King Sennacherib, and so uh, he believes this rumor. He hears this rumor. He believes the rumor that Cush is coming against him. Why is that important? Well, he's already attacking Judah. He's already engaged at Lachish, and now if Cush is coming. There's going to be another battlefront. He's not going to take on Jerusalem in the midst of all that. He will not fight on three fronts. So he's going to deal with what he's doing down there, prepare for the coming of Cush. And so, meanwhile, he sends a threatening letter to Jerusalem. Like, I'm not done with you. I'm going to deal with you later. And yeah, just to kind of keep them in distress. So much is fulfilled of what the Lord says here. He heard the rumor. He's at least delaying his conquest of Jerusalem. And Hezekiah gets this letter. So Hezekiah then, he's received more news and, and another insult concerning the Lord. And now what we're going to do is we're going to see that he's gone to the Lord with this problem as well. The Lord announced through his word a solution and we've seen a partial fulfillment already. The Lord is wisely rolling this out bit by bit so that King Hezekiah can see bit by bit it be fulfilled and can have an increase in his faith and pray all the more fervently for the Lord to work. And he can believe that the Lord is going to work. And so each step will increase his faith and show forth the glory of God. So when this letter comes to then Hezekiah, how does Hezekiah respond to this letter? Well, let's take a look at verses 14 through 20 and just see. It says this, starting in verse 14, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their, and their lands, and they have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth might know that you alone are the Lord. And so some important words here from King Hezekiah and a beautiful prayer, a prayer that is a model. It begins with some worship of who he is. He addresses him as the Lord of hosts, appropriate to his situation because the word host there, it means armies. In other words, he's the Lord of armies. He's above all armies. And he has the greatest armies, the hosts of heaven. And so Hezekiah receives this disturbing letter, spreads it before God. And then we can see that the people of God continue to pour out their concerns to God. This continues. The Lord begins to act. And as things progress, the people of God continue to pour out themselves to God before him. It's a... Uh, as Jesus told us and when he taught us how to pray, he said, be persistent in it. You know, keep going to the Lord in it, not to be in vain repetition, but to be persistent in prayer, to continue to ask for a thing. 
uh, because these are important things to do. And so he's going to continue to ask. He doesn't get the letter and say, well, I already asked God to take care of it. No need in, in going over this anymore. No, he takes it, he spreads it out before the Lord continues to pour out the concerns. It is God that has been offended here. And this is important because, after all, all sin is truly against God, for he is the one that defines it. And even though our sin has worldly victims and worldly implications and affects the lives of others, and we sin against others in this way, it is primarily against God, uh, whom all sin. It was Judean homes that were burned and cities that were destroyed and young men killed in battle, but it was ultimately the Lord and his reputation, the one who had made those people, the one who had given those people everything they needed to build the lives that they had. He is the one that has been spurned. He is the one that has been insulted here. And it's important for us as God's people today, when the world rages against God's people, it is God who's actually assaulted. This is exactly what our Lord Jesus taught us when he said these things in the scriptures. He said, the one who hears you, hears me, and the one who rejects you, rejects me. The one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. He said it like this in the Gospel of John. He said, all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And when he is preparing his disciples for his temporary departure and his permanent departure on the night that he was taken uh, to be crucified, he tells them, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So while we might be in the path of those who uh, are sinning against God, it is actually against God that they are disobeying, that they are rejecting, that they are blaspheming, that they are attacking. And this is why the Lord tells the church in the book of Romans, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. In other words, vengeance is his to give. It is not ours to give. This is how, this is why we're commanded to pray for our enemies. We're prayed to forgive. We're prayed to turn, we're commanded to turn the other cheek and how we move forward in our lives, taking the persecution and not taking it personally, is by doing so. By recognizing that this is a, a war against God, and therefore we can intercede for those who are warring against God in this way. And we can pray that they will turn, and pray that they will be redeemed, and pray that if God needs to, he will take vengeance upon them. The book of Acts models this for us, models this balance between this turning of the other cheek and letting things happen when there's a proper time for civil disobedience, when we're commanded to go against God and we just can't obey those things, or when we defend our own teachings, or we stand up for our rights, as we see happen in the book of Acts. But all the while, we make sure that vengeance is the work of God alone. I want to also point out in verse 16 here uh, how he begins with worship. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. This is plain and simple 
worship that Isaiah is that Hezekiah is calling out to God and reminding himself of who this God is. He is the commander of all armies. He is the God of Israel. In other words, he's personal to them, even though he's so high, even though he's so important. He is personal to the nation of Israel. He is enthroned above the cherubim, these angelic beings that are magnificent and sinless and flawless in their worship of God. He is above all of that. He is God. He alone is God. And he is God, not just of Israel, but of all the kingdoms of the earth. He indeed is their maker. Sometimes when we begin in prayer, It is important for us to put God in perspective and our relationship with him alongside it. Is this not what Jesus says when he gives us the model prayer, an example of the way in which we ought to pray, to address him as Father, reminding us of our relationship, who art in heaven. In other words, he is utterly holy and separate and and distinct from creation itself. You know, hallowed be your name. In other words, may you be respected. May you be held as perfect and holy and distinctly other from creation. Those other gods were no gods at all. And it is only God who is God. And now he essentially says, show the world who you are. Look at what has happened and look what Assyria has done. And verse 20, so now, Lord God, save us from his hand. Why? So we can have a better life now? (laughs) Save us from his hand. Why? So that we can enjoy things better or that our prosperity will gain you uh, cred with all the rest of the nations of the earth? No. Save us that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord, that is, Yahweh, when you see it in all caps like that. This is the message, the prayer of King Hezekiah to God. And God continues to answer prayer by his word, because he's going to send another word to Isaiah, starting in verse 21 here. Let's take a look at these verses, and let's take it all the way through 29 here. It says, Then Isaiah the son of Amos sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights against the holy city of Israel? By your servants you have mocked the Lord, and you have said with my many chariots I have gone up to the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon, to cut down its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses, to come to its remotest height, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells. And drank waters to dry up the sole of my foot and all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard? Now he addresses the king directly. That I determined it long ago. I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass. That you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins. While their inhabitants shorn of strength are dismayed and confounded. And have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, 
like grass on the housetops, blighted before it is grown. I know you're sitting down, and you're going out, and you're coming in, and you're raging against me. Because you have raged against me, and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose, and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. And so these are the words of the Lord concerning Sennacherib. And he basically says, Jerusalem will now mock you. You mocked me, Jerusalem's going to mock you. The daughter of Zion, that speaks of the faithful, the believers of all Israel, and even the new covenant when you really dig into it. And essentially, you've mocked the Lord in your pride. You thought you achieved all that you have achieved. You thought you did this on your own, but it was I who did it. I planned it a long time ago. It's what I planned. And I know everything about you, including your rage against me. I brought you to this point, and now I'm turning you back. What a strong message from the Lord to Sennacherib. But then he says some about Judah too, starting in verse 30. Look what it says about Judah here. It says, this shall be a sign for you. This year you shall eat what grows of itself. So this is now a message to Judah. And in the second year, what springs from that? Then in the third year, sow and reap and plant vineyards, and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward, and bear fruit upward. For out of a Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Therefore thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into the city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. So here's essentially his message to Judah. He says, I'm going to give you a sign. You're going to have three years of peaceful recovery. That's what that means, that they're going to be able to go out and they're going to kind of live off of what's left in the land after the army goes away. And then the next year, they're going to be able to eat just what springs up from that. In other words, they're not going to be able to organize and and straighten things out and get crops in that year. But the third year they will. They'll plant crops and they will reap those crops and they will reap abundantly and they will continue to grow in peace. And in fact, this is fulfilled by about a hundred years of peace that the nation Judah has from the point that the Assyrian army here at the end of the chapter is destroyed, spoilers, and till the time that Babylon comes against them. So the king of Assyria is no longer a threat to them because of the reputation of the Lord and what he had promised to David. Well, let's take a look at the uh, epilogue here, as I call it, God executing his plans. And this is important uh, for us to see. God executes his plans and continues to, to answer his people with his word. So as God executes his plans, here's what it says, starting in verse 36. The angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp 
of the Assyrians. Now, let that sink in for just a minute. The angel of the Lord is singular. Many people see this as a Christophany, perhaps a, 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 an appearance of Jesus Christ here in the Old Testament. It's a possibility. And he strikes down 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. So this happens at night. The people wake up and they're like, wasn't there an army out there? I don't see anyone moving. Okay, well, send our sneakiest little spies out there to check it out. See what's happened to them. And they go out and they find out they're all dead. They're all dead. And then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed, returned home, lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping, and this is some years later this happens, as he is worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramalek and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Esarhaddon, his son, raised in his, reigned in his place. So, profoundly dysfunctional family. But I want you to notice a phrase that's very important at the end of verse 32 here in this message to Judah. Uh, he speaks of all that he is going to do to turn this back. And he says it this way, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I mentioned earlier that this concept of hosts, when it says Lord of hosts, it could be translated as Lord of armies. Maybe more to it, a broad range of meaning for that word, but uh, for our purposes here, it's definitely being used uh, by the Holy Spirit as a play on words in this, because here you have the army of Sennacherib and the others, and yet you have the Lord of hosts. That's how, uh, that's how Hezekiah addresses him. That's how the Lord responds. It's the zeal of the Lord of hosts that's going to do this. The Rabshako once made a boast about the superiority of his army back there in chapter 36, verses 8 and 9. Look what he says there. He says, uh, come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. In other words, I'll bet you this. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you're able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen. You see how the Lord turned his boast right back on him? He's telling Judah, how can you even stand against one of my captains? And the Lord sends how many of his angels? One, the angel of the Lord. So how does that compare then? How does the Lord of hosts compare to the Assyrian army, the Assyrian host? This is powerful, and this is incredible, and this is irony that's put there by the Holy Spirit on purpose, that we would see this, and that we would see this great contrast. Okay, here's the kingdoms of men. Here's the most fierce and, and awful fighting force in the world at the time that has come against the people of God, and they're nothing compared to the Lord of hosts. Now, something very important that I want you to understand here as God executes his plans is, did you notice how the prayers of the people of God were part of the plans of God? Now, if you've been reading the scriptures, and especially if you've been reading here in Isaiah, you find out this is a flawed people. They've got problems. 
But nevertheless, did you catch at the beginning of God's response to them, because you have prayed. Because you have prayed. I'm going to put that up just to convince you that it's there because you need to understand it. Because we lose sight of this, especially those of us who have a very high view of God and his absolute sovereignty over the world. Sometimes we miss this point right here. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria. Because you've prayed. God is absolutely and completely in charge of all these things. He knows what he's doing. He even told the king of Assyria, look, I planned this long ago. And as you read through Isaiah, you find this to be absolutely true. He had already told the prophet Isaiah he was going to do exactly this, that he was going to bring the Assyrian army to conquer all of Judah except Jerusalem. And he predicted it long ago. And so the question then for the people of God is, Hezekiah, who knows these teachings of Isaiah, who's heard of all these things, he knows, yeah, 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 the Lord's bringing Assyria and he is going to judge us because we deserve it and rightly so. And he is going to conquer the entire nation except this city. And so here come the messengers from Assyria and everything else. And they say, hey, we're going to, we're going to conquer you. You better just give up, you know. And Hezekiah takes that before the Lord and he prays that they won't. But he knows that they won't. Isn't that what the, the word of God said through Isaiah? That they weren't going to conquer Jerusalem. But yet Hezekiah prays. He didn't say, ah, oh, well, Isaiah said it's not going to come to pass. You know, you're going to get this far and no further. So, you know, I, I'm not really worried about it. No, he prays. He brings it before the Lord. Why? If the Lord has already decreed something to happen and his people know it, why should his people pray for it? Isn't this what Jesus taught us? He taught us to pray, thy kingdom come. We've been told to pray for all things. We've been told to pray for his return, which he said he's going to do without fail. But yet we're told to pray for it. See, the understanding is this. The reason why people don't understand why we ought to pray, even though we know what the Lord wants to do, we know what he's going to do, is we don't understand his purposes and what he's doing. God is reestablishing the Edenic order of things. In other words, he's reestablishing how things were at the beginning. And he's when he made Adam and Eve in his own image, according to his likeness, this was not that they looked like him. This was not that they were going to be particularly like him in any way, but they were generally in many ways but that they would act as he does, except for creation. In other words, God set mankind over creation. And he says this in the creation account by saying that he had given them dominion. And then he brings forth all the animals to the man, and the man names the animals. Names are significant in the scriptures, and the one giving the name is in charge. And so he put mankind in charge. 
and he is reestablishing that order. And so he is not doing anything that he does not expect his people to be involved in and the people of God to be praying for and asking for. He's put us back on top of the world order and we as believers in Jesus Christ are reigning with him now. So to suggest that we have no need to pray, no desire to pray for things that we believe will come to pass is suggest that we may not be worthy of that position of ruling with him. And it's to suggest that maybe I'm not really in that position because I don't really care enough to pray about it. If we don't find ourselves praying for the things of God, for his will to be done on earth, it's it's clear that we misunderstand his purpose in all of it. He doesn't need us for any of this. He doesn't need us to pray, but by his great grace and according to his great plans and the purposes that he has for mankind and all of creation, he has decided that we will take the position of being the body of his ruling right hand here on earth. And we will be part of that privileged position And we will play the part prayer. Did God turn back the Assyrian army because he wanted to? Or because his people prayed? Think about this question. Did God turn back the Assyrian army because he wanted to? Or because his people prayed? The answer is inextricably and inarguably yes. He turned them back because he wanted to, and he turned them back because his people prayed. His people praying was part of the process, was part of the plan. Is that significant in the grand scheme of things? And the question then, as we try to seek to apply this to ourselves, is will he continue to save souls upon the earth from the gospel message because he wants to? Or because his people pray for it. Yes, he will continue to save souls because he wants to and because his people pray for it. Will he sanctify us and give us victory over sin because he wants to or because his people pray for it? Yes, both. And so the question I have for you is, can we expect anyone else to be saved if no one prays for it? No, we cannot. Can we expect to be sanctified, to have victory over sin, if indeed we never pray for it? No, we cannot. Will he return just because he wants to, because his people pray for it? And the answer is yes. He returns because that's his plan and that's what he's going to do. And he returns because his people pray for it. Both, yes. Why do we as believers, with this privileged position of prayer, to be involved with the very work of God upon earth, to be involved with his bringing his will to be done upon the earth, why do we often sit on the sidelines thinking someone else is going to pray? Here's a suggestion. Grab that someone else you think is praying and pray together with them. Like Hezekiah reached out to Isaiah. He didn't assume Isaiah was praying. 
Isaiah was a prophet. Isaiah was a man of God. But he made no such presumption upon Isaiah. He sent messengers to him, said, pray. And Isaiah sent word back because he obviously had been. And the two of them praying together were part of this turning back of the Assyrian army and the salvation of thousands upon thousands of those Chideans. Stop expecting revival without your prayers. Stop expecting church unity without your prayers. Stop expecting church growth without your prayers. Stop wishing for revival and awakening without asking God for those things. The prayers of a righteous person accomplish much, is how James put it. And you might think, well, I'm not a righteous person, but I want you to think theologically here, Romans chapter 3 here, in Jesus Christ, we are no less than the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. So by way of encouragement, I want us first and foremost to understand this great encouragement right here. That first and foremost, our God is the Lord of hosts. and He is still executing his plans. And his plans will not fail. Look what Isaiah says in chapter 55, verse 11 here. He says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose it and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God says plainly, his word will be accomplished. And he commanded us, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them all things. This is why we pray. We are told to pray this way. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are told that our prayers will always be answered in the affirmative when we pray, as Jesus says, in my name. That means according to his will. And what is his will? How do we know his will? Well, we have the word of God, which plainly explains and displays his will. Our God is the Lord of hosts. He's accomplishing his will, but he is doing it through the prayers of his people. And this is a battlefield. This is life and death out here. That This is salvation of mankind is at stake. The people of God, the, the true people of God, they put aside their petty differences and they focus on the work at hand because people are dying. Could you imagine Isaiah and Hezekiah arguing over the color of the carpet when they should have been praying? arguing over the menu for the fellowship meal that they're going to have when they should have been praying. Can you imagine Isaiah and Hezekiah arguing over which one of them has the better spiritual gift? Which is more important, the role of prophet, the role of king? Which one follows a better teacher? Is it my guy, is it your guy? My mentor, your mentor. My favorite preacher, your favorite preacher. And these guys had baggage because Hezekiah had obviously not listened to some of the things Isaiah had said. Isaiah already had messages. Don't trust in other nations. Don't go down to Egypt for help. Don't appeal and try to negotiate with these people. Turn only to the Lord. 
But Hezekiah tried some of those other things. He tried some treaties. He tried some deals on the side. And was this the time when Isaiah sends messengers to Isaiah? Hey, Isaiah, uh, you know, we're surrounded by the Assyrians. Won't you pray? And Isaiah fires back. You know what? No, I'm not going to pray because I told you not to do these certain things. I told you not to go this route. Now look at the mess we're in. There's none of that. There's unity, unity for God to do his will. And they set their baggage aside and they set their personal shortcomings aside and their failures aside. Hezekiah didn't bow his head and walk away saying, well, I've really messed this up. No, he went to the Lord in prayer. And Isaiah didn't bring up the fact or didn't allow the evil one to bring up the fact that he had unclean lips because the Lord had showed him, I've atoned for that in the heavenly altar. They laid those things aside. They prayed. They got down to the work of God. And sometimes the work of God, the greatest work, the most important work, the preeminent work, the thing that should be done first is the prayer. Yes, God is working. Yes, he has his plans. Yes, they will be accomplished, but they will be accomplished through the prayers of his people. Make sure you're fit for battle. The first thing to do and to understand and the first step into really accomplishing this and cooperating with this is to make sure that you have surrendered to the Lord of armies on his terms unconditional surrender. He says, repent of your sins. Turn from them. Desire not to do them again. Turn to God for whatever it is he would have you to do. And that's the first step is repent. And then trust in Jesus Christ because what Jesus Christ did in putting an end to the sacrificial system where they were offering sacrifices over and over again the Lord was just teaching us about what Jesus Christ would do. He would offer himself as the penalty for sin on our behalf. In other words, the sins that we had committed earned ourselves a death penalty from God. And instead of that being placed upon us, it's placed upon the person of Jesus Christ, who was fully God so he could take it all for as many as believe. And he was perfectly righteous in his life, never having sinned himself. And so once it was all poured out upon him, he could take his life up again because he had not forfeited his own life. And so he took upon the wages of sin for all those who will believe. So trust in him today and let him take your sin burden and let him put upon you his yoke, which he says is light and is easy. It's the way of peace. It's the way to be part of the solution. It's the way to know God, to draw near, to pray, to know his will, and to see it accomplished. There is no greater position on planet earth, and there is no higher authority than he who gives that position. The Lord Jesus Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father. Let's close in prayer. Father, remind us this day of how important it is for your people to pray. Lord, we find ourselves in the, in the midst of many difficulties and in many ways the modern church is besieged by false teachings, by errant views of the world, by the, a world that despises the truth of God. 
And Lord, I pray that your will would be done, that you will continue to send your word out and to accomplish it. You've promised, and therefore many more to be saved. You haven't come back today, therefore we know you're scheduled to save some today. And I pray that this message might be a part of that and might be a help in saving some to understand that this world is under the authority of God. And while it may seem out of control, and while it may seem chaotic, and we see the armies surrounding the city, we know that but one of your angels could wipe out an entire human army. And we know that one day, Lord, you will return, and you will separate the righteous from the wicked, and they will go into everlasting contempt, and the righteous into everlasting joy in your presence in a new heaven and a new earth. Lord, I pray that you bring this all to pass quickly and that you help us to do our part in prayer. We thank you for the privilege. We ask you to give us the faith to be good wielders of this weapon. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope you're enjoying the series. You can find uh, more from this series uh, online. And it is called The Lord of Hosts, uh, is the sermon message. The series is called Let Us Reason Together. You can contact us, find more sermons at whitesrun.org. You can contact us by email, whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com. I will respond to those personally. I hope to hear from you, whatever your question, concern, or comment would be. Uh, God bless you, and may you stay in the Word of God.